So today we're continuing on with the, the Christian worldview. And the Christian worldview is important. The Christian worldview is important because Colossians tells us to be very careful. He gives us a warning. Colossians tells us, be careful of human traditions and principles of this world because there's lots and lots and lots of ideas that we're being exposed to all the time. We're sometimes not even aware of it, but we're listening to different ideas all the time. And God says, be careful you don't go to human tradition and principles of this world, but rather come back to Jesus and his word because that's the truth. So we've got to be constantly, effortfully, putting some effort into thinking about what is the truth in all situations on all topics. So we've covered a lot of topics so far. We've looked at theology and we've looked at philosophy and we've looked at psychology. We've looked at biology. And this time, for the next four weeks, we're going to look at sociology. So what is it? What is sociology? It's really nothing too complicated. Sociology is just the study of social institutions such as family, church and government. So really sociology is saying we're just going to have a good look at different groups of people in society. We're looking at society. What are they about and what do they do? That's it. It's a word that just means looking at groups of people. It looks at all groups of people. It looks at secular institutions such as sporting clubs and the way that Lots of sporting clubs are defined is by what they do. So you know that a cricket club plays cricket, a um, football club plays football. It's what they do. But what about the church? Because we're a group of people. We're a group of people that God wants to do something special. But we're not defined by our activity. We're not defined by our activity because we're divinely established There's something very sacred about this group of people, which is different to a sporting club or a social club. This is a divinely appointed group of people, specially chosen. There's something different about this group of people, the church, to any other group of people. Our essence is determined not by what we do. So if people were to walk in and say, oh, is this church, what do you do? Do you sit around and chat? Do you just sit around and talk to one another? Or you seem to be talking to maybe the ceiling. Who are you talking to when you talk about God? That's not our definition. Our definition, the essence, our identity comes from what he says about who we are and what we do. So the church is defined not by what man does, but by what God says. So what does God say? God says in 1 Corinthians, he says, For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. That's us. We're one body. We're a church body. And we've been divinely appointed. We've been divinely baptized by his spirit to become one. That makes us very different and separate from just a group of people who are getting together to have a chat. There's a divine appointment on each person's life, on each part of the body that sits here today. So we're baptised by the Holy Spirit. When we become a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes to live within us. He connects us together. 
connects individually he lives within us and corporately as a group he connects us together through his spirit. We're baptized as one. So last week Mark talked about becoming new, about that individual process that happens when we decide, yes, our life really does belong with Jesus. Yes, we want to be walking with him. He, he wants to be our Lord and Saviour and we want him to be our Lord and Saviour. So there's this individual process that goes on when each one of us becomes new. We become a new man. But we also become a new group. We also become a new body. We become a new society called the church. And in this scripture, in verse 13, he says to us, we're given one spirit to drink. That means that each one of us is is going back to the same spirit and each one of us has been filled with the same spirit. And in that spirit, in his spirit, we are filled with his giftings, with his interests, with his ideas. It all comes from him. And is it for us? Is it for personal satisfaction? No, he says, this is to build one another up. This is to do the work that I'm setting you to do. He says to us, this is about building up the body as a whole. But in order for the body to be doing its work as a whole, it needs to be led by one person. And that person is Jesus. He says, in Colossians 1.18, he is the head of the body, the church. And again in Ephesians 1.22-23, and God placed all things under his feet, under Jesus' feet, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So because we are full of Jesus, that means we're meant to be a full expression of him, of who he is and how he acts and the work that he did. We need to be doing what Jesus did, loving who Jesus loved, reaching out to who Jesus reached out to. But to do that, we've got to make sure we remain connected to him, connected to the head of this group, this organization. He's the one that gives us directions about who we are and what we do. That's not defined by man and what we do. It's defined by what God says and what Jesus tells us on a day-to-day basis. Not only do we need to be connected to him to do the church's work, but we've got to be connected to one another. It's without being connected with him and without being connected to one another, we are not a church by his definition. And we need to be connected to him and we need to be connected to one another because we've got a big task to do. We can't do it on our own. It's impossible to do on our own. And the task, this one you're familiar with, I'm sure. Matthew 28, 18 to 20, the Great Commission. This is our task. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of of the age. So he's telling us we need to be evangelists. We need to be baptizing and we need to teach as a group. But always staying connected to him. And he says I'll never leave you to the end of the age. He's always there for us. He doesn't move. We may move from him but he never moves. He's there to encourage us, empower us, equip us, enable us, exhort us. He's there 
to enable us to do this amazing, huge, honourable task he's given the church, us to do. He also tells us that we do so to an amazing degree. Jesus says in John 14, 12, Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. That's how he defines what he wants us to do to do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. So we are an extension of his ministry. He wants us to do what he's been doing, and he's actually expecting us to do even greater, which is huge when you think about what he did in the short time he was on earth. So we're here to make disciples of all nations. We're here to baptize, we're here to evangelize, and we're here to teach. And that includes telling people that the problem in their lives is sin and the solution to their lives is salvation. That was an important central part of the work Jesus did. And he's saying, I want you to continue the work that I'm doing, even greater. A core part of what he did was to open people's eyes and say, your problem is sin. Your solution is salvation. Your solution is me. So that's core to what this group, this special sacred group that he's given himself to, he's filled us full of himself to do. Let's never remember or never forget that sin and salvation are the problem and solution that Jesus ministered to us. We need to continue that. Because you see, so much of society wants to run from God. So much of society doesn't want to talk about sin. It's not a hot topic. It's not a cool topic. And they certainly don't want to come towards God. Oof. So we've got to be spiritually alert. We've got to be quickened to the idea that society wants to run from God. We've got to think about bringing society to God. Because unless they come to God and face God, they're never going to have the solution, which is coming to Jesus. So society is about running away. Our job is to say, you need to come closer. The solution will never be out there. You have to come towards God and face God. And a really central role that we can take in bringing people to come towards God and facing God is to be the community that they're looking for, is to be the love that they need. They've had plenty of experiences of so-called love in the world which has let them down. We need to be the love that Jesus is inside of us. We need to be the love that Jesus is inside of us. That's being who we already are. It's staying connected to him to be who we are. It's staying connected to one another so we can reach out to so many people who need the solution of Jesus. There's a guy called Francis Schaeffer and he made this statement which I think is enormous. He says... I am convinced that in the 20th century, people all over the world will not listen if we, we the church, have the right doctrine, the right polity, but are not exhibiting community. It's true, isn't it? We can be saying all the right things. We can be saying we love our neighbor. But unless we're actually doing it, no one's going to listen to us. 
We can talk all the right talk, but unless we're walking that same talk, people are not going to listen to us. They don't want a hypocritical story. They're going to go the other direction if we're going to start talking God and then treating them a different way as if, well, we're talking it, we're just not walking it. We need people to come towards God, not away from God. And to think that in the Bible, eight times he says, love your neighbor as yourself. Eight times. How important is that statement for us? It's so familiar, this statement. Love your neighbor as yourself. But are we doing it? We may be talking it. We've got to walk it. We've got to walk this right walk. The Bible says to us, live such good lives among the pagans that though they may accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. What we do is bringing them towards God to glorify God. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. You see, our love, what we do to our neighbor, demonstrates the love of God. Love is the solution to your problem. Come towards God. Don't go away from God. He is the solution. And really, most people are familiar with this idea. They've heard this idea before, but have they experienced this in a real way with a group of people? See, most people are familiar with this idea of the golden rule. The golden rule that we're all familiar with, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I remember when um, I was at primary school and I think I was in year four. And when you're in year four, you get to go down on the bottom level. When you're little kids in, in the little Theodore State School, we used to be all up on the top level. When you hit year four, it was a big progression to get down onto the bottom level for some bizarre reason. And I remember that first day, I was so excited. I'm grade four. I'm big now. And I walked into that classroom, and on top of the blackboard were the words, do unto others as they shall do unto you. And I remember walking into the classroom and thinking, that's a bit weird. That makes no sense. Oh, well. But, you know, every day I sat in that classroom and every day I looked at do unto others as they shall do unto you. Every day. And every day I wondered, I still don't get it. I wonder what unto means. Never heard of that word before. That sounds like an old crotchety word. Oh, well, I'll ditch that. But how many of us have grown up looking at that do unto others as we shall do unto you? It's sort of easy to remember, but do we really understand it? Have I actually moved from when I was in year four, sitting looking at that every day? God wants us to know it, but he wants us to do it even more than knowing it. Because the world knows it, but the world experiences something quite different to this. I mean, how many people have been in love and jaded? How many people have been told, trust me, and they've been betrayed? How many people in the world have experienced a tough stab in the heart? I mean, they know what it's like not to live to this rule. Have they experienced a love which does live to this rule? I remember one time I was talking to a church minister and he had now changed his work where he was working in jails. So all his time was spent with sex offenders, pedophiles, 
and really the people that no one wanted anything else to do with. These people had committed horrendous crimes on beautiful little children and awful sexual offences, horrible, horrible things that society kind of pretends isn't there. But he went into the prison and he went in with the idea that surely they're human like me. Surely they know this golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So he said the first thing he did is he went in there and he did this survey with these sex offenders sitting in front of them. Now these are pretty rough guys, rough outcasts of society. And do you know 100% of those men in that room agreed with this? They said, yes, this is how we should treat people. Do unto others as I would have them do unto me. Did their actions support that? No. But he had a starting point, a starting point which says this is right. This is the way it's meant to be. Their actions don't follow it. But then our actions won't follow it either if we're not connected to the head and we're not connected to one another. We'll be just as hypocritical of the world. We can't follow this either unless we're listening to Jesus every day and unless we're connected to one another so we can help one another do this. This isn't easy to do. It's easy to do with some people. It's easy to do it with the people you like. But I sometimes think, what would I be like if I was there in front of a, a pedophile? Would I be able to do unto him the way I'd like to be treated? Could I treat him that well and put him on an equal level playing field as every other human being, like a good friend or my own children? God doesn't divvy it up. He says... Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. These are his words. This comes from Luke 6 verse 31. The very same words. Do to others as you would have them do to you. But he goes one step further. He says, yeah, okay. Loving those who love you and do unto others how you would like to do to them. Yeah, that's important. But I'm asking you to go to another step now. He's saying, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. In other words, people have experienced that in the world. If someone loves them first, yeah, okay, I'll love you back. But what about when someone doesn't love you first? What about when someone's really mean to you? What about when someone's really nasty to you? What about when someone's really rude to you? Does that mean I don't have to love them back? Jesus says, that's no credit to you. You'll be no different to the world. Remember, Jesus defines who we are in this church. Jesus defines what we do, who we love, and when we love. He says, don't wait till they love you first. There's no credit in that. We'll just blend into the world. You see, to make disciples of all nations, and that's our great commission, we need to be loving people before they love us. And we need to be loving all people, regardless. Jesus made this pretty clear in the famous parable of the Good Samaritan. Let's open our Bibles and read it again. I know it's familiar to you, but let's read it again. Let's go to his word. We're in Luke chapter 10 
And let's start from verse 25. So we'll read from 25 to 37. Okay, is everyone there? Luke chapter 10, starting from verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? I just want to stop there for a moment. The questions we ask reveal a lot about our heart. Notice the question the lawyer is asking. Who is my neighbor? Let's see if I can maybe define that, if I can find a loophole in the law, because, you know, I'm all about the letter of the law. So just note, the questions we ask says something very important about our hearts and what we're thinking. Let's continue. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, but when he came to the place and saw him, pass by the other side. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. And he says to us today, church... My church, he says, go and do likewise. You see, it's interesting, isn't it? If we have a look at the social structure of the day, the priest and the Levite, they're dead smack in the middle. So in terms of status, they had it. They knew how to talk the talk. They could talk the law because they knew the law. And they made sure everybody knew that they knew the law. So we have a priest and a Levite, the very two with the highest status in the very core of the social structure of the day. When it comes to walking the talk, to love thy neighbour as thyself, now that's just gone out the window. Because, you know, that man lying on the ground. And the interesting thing is we're not told in the Bible who the man is where he fits on the social structure here. But for them, no, they're going to walk on the other side and leave that man. For them, it was just talk. It never became walk. But the Samaritan, he's on the edge there. He's really on the outer. 
So this man that really doesn't have status, this man, I don't know whether he could talk the talk. Certainly he was ostracised. Certainly the Jews thought he was ceremonially unclean. We don't want anything to do with the Samaritans. I mean, these two groups have been enemies for a long time. There's a lot of history here. And yet it's the Samaritan who could walk the talk. He's the one that could show us how to love our neighbour, who our neighbour is. So if we now look at today and we say, let's look at today. Who are the social outcasts today? Who are on the outside today? And I would suggest to you that it's the oppressed, the hungry, the prisoners, the blind, those who are bowed down, the foreigner, the fatherless, the widow. And the reason I would suggest that they're the outcast is because God told us us told that to us just this morning in Psalm 146. He said, remember, he upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner. The Lord sustains the fatherless and the widow. So God is saying to us, this is what I do. I go after the social outcasts here in your society. And in fact, Jesus showed us that because God talks the talk, but he walks the talk too. He says, this is what I did. I went after the blind man that couldn't see, and I want you to continue my ministry. That's your work, church. Don't leave them out. Don't make them social outcasts in the church. The world will. The world doesn't care. The world says they've got no status. But I'm saying to you, go after them. And I have put myself in you to do this work. He says, I want to remember all those that the world has forgotten. He says, loving your neighbor is loving these people that really don't have a good reputation, that really don't smell so good, that maybe don't look so good. He says, go for them. I went for them. You're to continue my work. Go for them. They're your neighbor too. I want you to love them as you love yourself. Do unto them as you would do for you. Do unto them as you would do for your own friends and family. That's a pretty tough call. Think about what you do for yourself. Think about what you do for your close friends and think about what you do for your family. Then think about the widow, the blind, the prisoners, the fatherless, the oppressed. And the oppressed, the word oppressed is an interesting one. It means being a slave to. There's plenty of people that are a slave to sin out there. Are we treating them like we treat ourselves? and our friends, and our family? Or are we thinking, nah, well, what could I do anyway? It's all too hard. I don't have those giftings to help those people. Just special people have those giftings. Really? Let's have a closer look at the Good Samaritan story. I think it can teach us how to love our neighbour. I want to look at the road from Jerusalem to Jericho because it's interesting that Jesus chose this setting to tell the story. 
He could have just said it was anywhere. He could have mentioned no place at all. He could have mentioned a different place. But he said on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. What do we know about the road from Jerusalem to Jericho? Well, it was known back then as the bloody path. And the reason it was known as the bloody path is because there were lots and lots of thieves and robbers that used to attack people, rob them, and then off they went. There was a lot of blood because a lot of people were attacked and killed for their clothing or their goods or their money. So think about that. Jesus chose the road from Jerusalem to Jericho to set this story. I want to read to you a a small excerpt from a speech that Martin Luther King made. This is a very famous speech. It's called I've Been to the Mountaintop, and you might be familiar with it. And he made this speech the day before his death. And he's talking about the Good Samaritan. Listen to what he says. He says, I remember when Mrs. King and I were first in Jerusalem. We rented a car and drove from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And as soon as we got on that road, I said to my wife, I can see why Jesus used this as the setting for his parable. It's a winding, meandering road. It's really conducive for ambushing. You started in Jerusalem, which is about 1,200 miles, or rather 1,200 feet above sea level. And by the time you get down to Jericho 15 or 20 minutes later, you're about 22 feet below sea level. That's a dangerous road. He's making the point it's steep. In the days of Jesus, it came to be known as the bloody pass. And you know, it's possible that the priest and the Levite looked over that man on the ground and wondered if the robbers were still around. Or it's possible that they felt that the man on the ground was merely faking and he was acting like he had been robbed and hurt in order to seize them over there, lure them there for quick and easy seizure. And so the first question that the priest asked, the first question that the Levi asked was, so before I give you the question that Martin Luther King thinks that maybe they were thinking in their head, remember the question the lawyer asked Jesus. Remember it showed something of his motive, what he was thinking about, what he was trying to achieve. So Martin Luther King's now saying, hmm, I wonder what question the priest and the Levite asked in their mind when they made that decision to cross on the other side of the road. Martin Luther King says, I think they asked themselves, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? And then he goes on. But then the Good Samaritan came by and he reversed the question. He said, if I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? What a difference in our attitude if we ask the second question instead of the first. What a difference in how we love one another and reach out and love our neighbours and love unto others if we were to ask the second question instead of the first question. Because you see... If we think about Jesus and maybe what question he asked to himself, imagine going to the cross and saying, ooh, to help out the world, what will happen to me on the cross? No, I think Jesus is more likely to say, 
if I do not come down to earth and climb on that cross and take your sins upon me, every single one of each person's sins in this world on me, what will happen to them? What a question. But it clarifies things, doesn't it? It actually shows that when Jesus said, I didn't come here to be served, I came here to serve. I didn't come here to make decisions on how this is going to affect me and what I can get out of coming to earth and get all the fame and glory and status and be in the centre of a social structure. He was ostracised. He was pushed out on the very outskirts of this circle. Now, Jesus, I think, would have asked this same question. If I don't come to earth, what will happen to all my children? I came to serve, not to be served. I came to love each neighbour. And he says to us today in his church, he says, go do likewise. Go find those people on the outside of society that no one else wants to talk to. Go be a neighbour to them. Because if we don't, we've got to think about what's going to happen to them. We've got to think about if we don't love our neighbours, what will happen to them? What about the innkeeper in this story? The innkeeper is a critical part of this story because Jesus had a reason for everything he said and did. Never a word was wasted. Each word was perfect. So he didn't have to have the innkeeper in the story, but he did because he's our teacher, remember. He teaches us something through this parable. He teaches us something through every single part of the story. Nothing's wasted in this story. So he had the innkeeper in there for a reason. So if we think about it, the Samaritan's on the road, so he's going somewhere. I don't think there was anything between these two places, Jericho and Jerusalem. So he's on his way somewhere, and he's got a donkey with him with some things on the donkey, so he's, he's doing something. He's got a purpose for that. And then he comes across this man, helps him out. But then he doesn't have all the giftings and resources, this one Samaritan man. Now he has to rely on the innkeeper because the innkeeper has something that the Samaritan didn't have. He had a place that he could stay. And this guy had some time to look after him. We don't know what the Samaritan was doing, but he was obviously doing something. So it's, it's looking at this story and saying it wasn't just one person here that helped this man. The Samaritan actually asked the innkeeper to help him, gave him some money to help him. So he connected with him and said, help me out here. So it took two of them to help the man on the side of the road. The Samaritan wasn't a lone ranger. He didn't fly solo. He did this with somebody else. And the innkeeper had gifts and abilities and resources, including time, to look after this guy. In fact, this reminds me of a scripture from Ephesians 4.16. I think you might have heard this one today. Let's see if we can remember it. If you've got your cards, you can scramble for them. 
Let's do it. Ephesians 4.16. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. The innkeeper is a part of this story. He did part of the work. The Samaritan was part of the story. He did his work. So no matter what we have or don't have, Jesus gives us all something. We all have something to give. It's not like only some of us. He doesn't have the circles. He just has Jesus and then all of us. It's not like just the ones in the center have to do all the work or the ones in the center are specially gifted. We're all the same. We're all gifted. Each and every single one of you sitting here today is gifted with a special gift from Jesus. And I know that because each one of you as a believer is full of him. We live in the fullness of Jesus. That's amazing when you think about it. Incredible when you think about it. He says, where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. That's it. Two or three of us gathered together in his name. That's church. So that means he's our head and he's the one who fills us till we're full of him. He directs our thoughts, our actions, if we stay connected to him. And you see, without him, if there's just two or three gathered without him, there's no him. Do we understand that we can love our neighbor? We can love every neighbor because we're empowered with him. The world can't because they don't have him to enable them to love every single neighbor. There's a big difference. We've got to understand, and I think it's easy to take him for granted when two or three of us are together praying. He's right there with us. We don't see him, but he's there, and he's strong, and he's more powerful than we could imagine. Let's imagine that we have um, one person, and we imagine one person is one dimension. That's represented by a line. So if we think about shapes, we talk about shapes being one dimension, two dimensions, or three dimensions. So if we just have one person, we've just got one dimension. Okay, let's go to two dimensions. Let's say we add a second person. So now we've got two people. We've got two dimensions now. So when you've got two people and you've got two dimensions, now you get a two-dimensional object, like a square, for example. Now, what happens next is whether or not there's a third dimension. Because right now we only got two dimensions, and that's pretty flat. And without Jesus, it will only ever be two dimensions when two or three gather. It's two or three that gather in his name. You see, when two or three believers gather, something happens. Something extraordinary happens to this two-dimensional object. It becomes a three-dimensional object. 
There's a big difference between a flat square on a blackboard and a three-dimensional box. Because you see, a three-dimensional object is got something in it. It holds something. It's full of something. And yes, if I opened this box, you would see nothing. But you know, Jesus is invisible too, hey? But he can make a big difference when two or three are gathered in his name, i.e. church. And he is there. He says, I am with you. He says, I filled you with myself. You are full of me. So you see, we can love our neighbor because in essence, we're loving three dimensions. The world can only love two-dimensionally. They're not full of his spirit. There's a big difference. That's why we can love our neighbor. That's why we can be different. That's why it can be a different experience for people who don't know Jesus to know the love of Jesus through us because we're full of him. You see, people are sick of the being ripped off in the world. People are sick of being stabbed in the heart in the world. They're looking for real love. They're looking for someone to treat them as a real neighbor, real neighborly love. They're wanting the golden rule to be true. Everyone says the golden rule is right. Everyone agrees with that. But the only real experience of the golden rule is when there's a third dimension. There's no third dimension in the world. We have the beautiful third dimension of his Holy Spirit with us. I think we forget that. It's like when I'm wearing glasses. So I'm wearing them more and more often, which is a bit of a problem, but anyway. And if I take my glasses off, I can see these glasses. These are, I can see, yep, okay. That's what helps me see. But, you know, it's not until I put the glasses on and look through them that I can see. I can't see my glasses when I can see. But when I put my glasses on, I can see. And, you know, the Holy Spirit is just like that. He sits comfortably. It's almost like we don't even notice him anymore. I don't even notice I've got my glasses on anymore. But I can see The Holy Spirit helps us to see the need that's out there. Heaps of people will walk past a need that's right in front of them. They don't necessarily see it and cross the road. They don't even see it in the first place. But we can see because he gives us eyes to see. And he gives us eyes to see their real need and their real problem because their real problem is sin and their real need is Jesus. But they don't have glasses to see the real problem. They don't have glasses to see the real solution. But we do. We just forget that we do because it's so comfortable. It's so easy. We've forgotten he's even there. But we are full of him. We can do this. We can love as Jesus loved because we are full of him. The world can't. We can. There's a huge difference between this sociological group, the church, and any other group of people out there doing good. They are not empowered with his spirit. They cannot do what we do with Jesus. It's impossible. 
Without him, we can do nothing. Without him, they can do nothing. We need to be different because we are different. The Good Samaritan um, has generated a lot of interest and is famous because it sparks something in people. It hits something in people. There's a rightness here. And Henry Lawson, and for those of you who may not know of this famous Australian poet, Henry Lawson is someone that writes lots of bush ballads, I suppose, is the best way to describe him. And he wrote a poem about the Good Samaritan. And I want to read through this third stanza that he wrote of this poem called The Good Samaritan because I think it tells us a little bit about how maybe God gives us eyes to see. He says... He's been a fool perhaps and would have prospered had he tried but he was one who never could pass by the other side. An honest man whom men called soft while laughing in their sleeves. No doubt in business ways he oft had fallen amongst thieves. It's the last two lines that stand out for me. No doubt in business ways he oft had fallen among thieves. I'd never thought about that before. I'd never thought maybe the Samaritan has walked along this road before and he's been attacked by thieves. He knows what that feels like to be lying on the side of the road, ignored and having people walk past you even when they see the need. You see, I think about all the pain and suffering and persecution and if, if we're being Christians and doing what we're meant to be doing, you're going to be persecuted. Jesus tells us that. There's going to be pain. There's going to be suffering. There's, there's going to be yucky stuff happen. And this connects with that for me. It's like, oh... So those yucky things that have happened to me, those stabs in the heart, those betrayals, that persecution. You see, when I experience that and when you experience that in your lives, you don't forget that, do you? It sits with you. you if you remember it, you could even feel maybe what you felt at the time. And I think to myself... God helps us see other people's needs through our own experiences. There's something important that we need to take away from those experiences that we've had in life that were not so nice. When we were the ones feeling like we were sitting maybe beyond here, when we've been embarrassed, when we've been excluded I mean, exclusion is a, is a horrible thing. And this is really about social exclusion. We're talking about sociology, which is a group of people. And to be excluded from a group of people, that's a painful process. And there's all sorts of levels of that. I mean, think about at high school, even primary school. Maybe you're in high school at the moment. Think about when you walk up to a group of people And they just turn the other way. 
That's all it takes to be excluded. Maybe in the workplace, and I think I've mentioned this lady before that came to see me. She was a fairly senior lady um, in this organisation and she was coming to see me about workplace bullying. The worst part for her was when they all went out to lunch and didn't invite her. Exclusion, it's awful. It's horrible. I rem- I, and I guess that sparked for me because I remember feeling that way in the workplace. If I, if I go back and, and think about a situation about being excluded, I think about when I was in the bank. And I remember the whole floor of managers, all male except for me. So I was the only female, so I was 24, I think. You know where they went to lunch? So I'm in the city. Tattersalls. You know what that is? Only men allowed. So they all went. They knew they didn't have to invite me. I'm the wrong gender. I mean, it doesn't take much to just stop and think about a situation where you've been excluded. It's awful. That was just a temporary exclusion. Imagine living out there for days, for weeks, for months, for years. Jesus says, go and do likewise. We need to go and do likewise, not on our own, but connected to our head and connected to one another. We need to go and make disciples of all nations, including these very people that Jesus went for as well. We'll see them through his eyes. He'll remind us through our own experiences of exclusion. 2 Corinthians says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. As a Christian now, when we're excluded or persecuted or going through difficult times, God will comfort us if we stay connected to him. But we can use that comfort. We have something. We're not empty. We're not two-dimensional. We're three-dimensional people. We have Jesus here who provides us with comfort so that we have something to give somebody else. We're not empty. We're not all out. Jesus says, I've comforted you so you could comfort somebody else. Our experiences help us ask the right question. Our experiences help us stop looking at ourselves and serving ourselves and asking, if I stop to help, what will happen to me? What's this going to cost me? How's this going to affect me? Our experiences help us say, if I don't stop if I don't love my neighbor what's going to happen to them those experiences are powerful to help us getting our eyes off of ourselves and onto the need that's out there I think about Daniel Morecambe's parents do you know that 13 year old boy so it was 2003 he was taken from that bus stop on the Sunshine Coast 
I mean, I look at his parents. Every time I see his parents, oh, I just, I, I cannot imagine that experience. I haven't had that experience. I mean, I have a 14-year-old son now, so very similar, too close. I can't imagine that pain. But you know, they've used those experiences to help others. They've got this no child left behind bus policy because they're adamant that they want to make sure that no bus driver drives past and leaves a school-aged child alone and a bus stop. So the world is doing it. I mean, I don't know if the Morecambe's are Christian or not, but they're certainly not suggesting that God had anything to do with this from what I've read. They're actually saying, we don't want our bus drivers to drive past and ignore these kids that are left on their own. They're asking the question, what will happen if the bus driver drives past to them? Not what will happen to us in terms of the money we won't get because now I think what some of the high schoolers are doing is they're going there on purpose and not taking any money with them. The bus is turning up. They're saying, you have to let me on the bus. I don't have any money, but you have to let me on, the law says so. So they're starting to abuse it now. So it'll be interesting to see where it goes. But then what are we going to expect? No resistance from reaching out? You see, Jesus loved you and he loved me way before we loved him. You know, we probably turned our back on him We might have even despised him. We didn't want anything to do with him. We ignored him. And yet when we were sinners, he died on the cross. It was while we were sinners. He didn't wait for us to love him before he loved us. And even today, we have good days, we have bad days. He loves us. He loves us through our backslidings. He loves us through the great times. He loves us through the difficult times. His love is constant and it never, ever changes. He says to us, go and do likewise. Go and love your neighbours. Go make disciples of all nations by staying in connection with me and staying connected with one another. Because making disciples is not individual work. Making disciples he gave as an instruction to the church, to his disciples. We can't do it without one another and we can't do it without him. There's an expression that says it takes a village to raise a child. Have you heard that expression? I think we need to think very carefully about maybe it takes a church community to make disciples of all nations. We can do this. We can do this because we can do it through him. We can't do it without him. So you see, this memory verse we did today is important for us to remember because each one of us has a part to play in making disciples of all nations. But notice it's connected. It's in connection to one another. 
with the ligaments that join us together. We were baptised into one body through his spirit which connects us all together. We've all got a part to play here. Not one of us is insignificant in his eyes. He says, I'm giving you this important work to do because you're significant in my eyes. Let's remember the Good Samaritan story and let's go and do likewise. Let's go and reach out to people that no one else wants to touch or have anything to do with. Let's remember those experiences of being excluded, being an outcast, even if it was just temporary, to remind us to ask the right question. What will happen if we won't do anything? What will happen to them? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful that you chose us and that you loved us first. We were helpless without you and we continue to be helpless without you. Lord, help us to stay so connected to you and so connected to one another that we can fulfill this great commission you have for our lives. Help us, Lord, to evangelize and help us to baptize, help us to teach, help us to make disciples of all nations, Lord. And Lord, when we don't feel like talking to you, when we find it difficult to pray, remind us, Lord, that you are there loving us with your arms open wide, ready to listen to us, ready to intercede for us, ready to speak in tongues for us. You have your word for us that we can go to. Remind us to go to the book of Psalms. And Lord, remind us that wherever there are two or three gathered in your name, there you are. Remind us to pray together. Remind us that it's important that we stay connected to you and connected to one another. We pray these things in your mighty name. And everyone said, Amen.